are you this morning? Good, good. Great to see you. Great to be in the house with you. I want to begin this week by asking you a question. What is the first thing that you think of when I say the word Puritan? When I say Puritan, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Now, for myself, up until a couple of months ago, I would have thought things like strict and stern, religious, legalistic, a little kind of mean, you know, definitely prudish. I would have thought prudish, definitely, when I think about the Puritans. And, and it's interesting that throughout this study of God-driven, God-centered happiness, I've discovered that the Puritans, of all people in the history of God's people, the Puritans were some of the staunchest advocates, some of the strongest proponents of happiness in the Christian life that have ever walked the face of the earth. Now, the Puritans, to be sure, were not perfect. Sometimes they could, some of them could go to extremes, but by and large, they were absolutely committed to this idea of Jesus-centered happiness in their lives. It might surprise you to know they were especially focused on happiness in marriage, happiness for husbands and wives. As a matter of fact, they went so far at one point in their history in the United States, before we were the United States, here in the New World, they actually drove into exile a member of their community, a man who did not sexually satisfy his wife. These are the people I want to be a part of. That, that's why from now on we will be called Lake Hills Puritan Church. I'm just kidding. Not really. But I think that's a fast. I never would have thought that about the Puritans. And probably the most famous Puritan of all was a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards lived in the 1700s, in the 1600s, excuse me, in the 1600s. And he was a pastor, a preacher, a theologian, a scholar. He entered Yale College at 13 years old. 13 years old. He was one of the leading figures, if not the leading figure, in the Great Awakening that swept across the New England area during the 18th century. And Edwards, as far as I could tell, and I went back and did as much research as I could, Edwards is responsible for coining a word that we're going to use today to kind of put the bow on the end of this series that we've been in for the last few weeks. Happy all year. Now, before we do that, I think it's important to understand the context of this word. One of the things that Edwards did during his ministry was that not only would he preach the word of God, he would also write commentaries about scripture. He would explain certain passages of scripture, certain individual words along the way. And the word that he used that I'm going to use today that we're going to incorporate into our spiritual arsenal is one that I think is going to be particularly helpful as we wrap up this study of happy all year. Because over the last few weeks, if you're just kind of joining us midstream today, we, we've seen over the last couple of weeks that our happiness is something that is not dependent upon our circumstances or what's happening around us. We, we've discovered that, that our happiness actually is something that Jesus speaks to specifically when he gives us the permission and the power to pursue peace and purpose 
in the middle of our pain or to, to even have permission to hope even though we hurt, that this happiness is there as a very real thing. And the basis of this series has been one passage of Scripture in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, that's kind of been our anchor and foundation for the entire series. I hope you have it probably memorized by now if you've been with us. But this is what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. The Bible says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And so there's this this call of Scripture. Really, it's a command for everybody who goes by the name Christian or follower of Christ to always enjoy, no matter what, life in the Lord. As we live this life, no matter what goes on around us, because of the hope we have in Christ, because of His power and His sovereignty, we have the ability to enjoy His presence and His power through every single circumstance, again, no matter what. And it's against this backdrop that I want us to go to Matthew chapter number 5. Our man, Jonathan Edwards, is writing in a commentary about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Then again, it's also recorded in Luke's Gospel, but it's particularly the one that we're most familiar with is from Matthew. And we're probably most familiar with it because of the Beatitudes. The, The beginning or the introduction that Jesus uses in this sermon, which is a particularly strategic sermon because this was kind of if it wasn't Jesus's first earthly sermon it was at least one of the first where he was introducing himself he was introducing the purposes of his ministry talking about this new covenant this new relationship this new kingdom of God that he was ushering in with his physical presence here on the earth and so in Matthew chapter 5 he's explaining what this looks like as his followers live it out Now, we're going to read just just the beginning. We're not going to read the whole Sermon on the Mount this morning because we don't have time. We've only got about another two, two and a half hours left in this sermon. So I want to, I'm just kidding. If you're visiting with us, that's a joke. We like to tease sometimes because we care. A little pastor humor thrown in every now and then. But apparently very little. Um, In Matthew chapter 5, and as I read this, I want to invite you to read the words that are highlighted with me. And you'll notice a pattern pretty early on. Now, when you read the word B-L-E-S-S-E-D, how many of you would say blessed? Let me just see a show of hands if you would read that blessed. How many of you would say blessed? Okay. There's no wrong answer. I was just kind of a curious. We're going to go with blessed, okay, as we read this together out loud, the highlighted words. Read this with me. Verse 3, we're starting in Matthew chapter 5. Read it with me. Ready? One, two, three. Blessed. Are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You just read the highlighted words. You don't have to read the whole thing. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't explain that well. Verse 4. Blessed. But I appreciate the enthusiasm. I really do. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Now this is just the very opening words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But watch what happens there. In nine different verses, verses 3 all the way through 11, nine verses. I know 11 minus 3 is 8, but you count number 3, so that's nine verses. Blessed, 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 blessed. Nine times Jesus uses this word, blessed. So I, I think it makes sense. I think it behooves us to actually think about and drill down into what Jesus is saying. And that's exactly what Jonathan Edwards was doing in his commentary. And it's in his commentary, particularly as it relates to verse 8, where, where the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. It's in his commentary on that verse that we get this incredible word from this incredible Puritan scholar. Check this out. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, it is a thing truly happifying to the soul of man to see God. Happifying to the soul. Is that a great term or is that a great term? Tell your neighbor right now, get your soul happified. That is a great word. I love, that sounds like something I would have made up, but I, I'm not Jonathan Edwards by any stretch. This is a Puritan scholar, happified, and the reason for that is this. In God's economy, there is no separation between the blessings of God and the happiness of people. None. So it makes sense that the translators of the King James Version that Edwards would have been preaching out of would use that word blessed. Now, what you've got to remember is the New Testament was written in Greek. Jesus spoke probably in Aramaic. That was the predominant vernacular that was used there in Palestine and Israel during Jesus' day and during his earthly ministry. But the, the people who wrote the New Testament under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit used Greek to record the Bible. And, and there's this incredible spiritual supernatural miracle that happens in the recording of Scripture. God supernaturally communicates to flawed human beings like you and me. But in his sovereignty and in his power, he protects the communication of Scripture to people. He also protects the translation of that initial communication so that what you and I have in the Bible today is the authoritative, infallible Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens a lot of times is these words that worked in Aramaic or maybe in Greek, they change over time when they come into English. And you and I know that the English language has changed in 1611 when the King James Bible was, was first published. 1611, people walked around and said, Is that a chickeneth? How much dost thou chargeth? We don't do that when we go to HEB anymore. We, we use language differently. So, Language changes, although the meaning remains eternal in God's economy. And the original Greek word for blessed was the word makarios. Say makarios. The word makarios in the original Greek, the closest English translation that you and I could connect to, is the word happy. Happy. So when Jesus says blessed, 
That's out of the King James translation of 1611. But the original intent of the original text was happifying to the soul. That these people who live like this, those who receive the kingdom of heaven, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, these people who think like this, who live like this, who act like this, they will be happified to their very souls. And that is something greatly to be desired. That, that it's worth striving for. It's worth hanging on. It's why we said last week that when a person follows Christ, the scope of their perspective changes dramatically. Because a lot of times we get focused on the here and the now, good, bad, or ugly. We focus on the moment, just right here. And we forget that this moment is a part of a much, much bigger story that God is telling, that God is in the process of writing, and that his purposes will always prevail. And so our hope grows as our scope expands because of who Christ is, because of what he has actually done, because of the truth of his life, his resurrection, and the hope that we have in him. It's a big deal to be happified to our souls. And that it's, it's not just kind of this, this superficial, you know, just kind of go along to get along prosperity gospel. That it's, it's a real soul deep God given kind of thing. And it's important, I think, that we understand Yes, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the concept of happiness. We've looked at how the power of the gospel literally changes our minds and helps us to think as God thinks as, and to act as God acts. But that's really where we're going to kind of wrap up this series because it, it's not enough to just think God thoughts. It's not enough to just go, I need to be happified in my soul. The fact of the matter is that you and I, play a massive role in the degree of happiness that we experience, that we express in a world that desperately, desperately needs more happiness. You see, the fact of the matter is the choices I make, the actions I take, definitively determine the degree of delight that I experience and express in this world. And so today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to get incredibly, incredibly practical, talking about habits that we form in our lives that are happifying to our soul within the context of a relationship with God. All of this makes sense and clarifies how Jesus concludes his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 12 in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 12, Jesus, after all of these blessed, all of these happifying statements, he says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Jesus is saying, listen, what I'm telling you here, this is not just about one day by and by on an uncloudy day. This is about the here and the now and understanding a greater perspective as you live your life day in and day out. The choices you make, the actions you take, determine the degree of delight that you experience personally and that you express outwardly. So, six things, six habits of happifying. 
And I want to encourage you to write these down in your program under the notes page as reminders as we go out from here. Because when we gather together on the weekend, this is, this is important, but it's, it's the lab. This, this is where we, we try certain things out and we test certain theories and hypotheses. But when we get out into the real world, man, that's the field. That, that's, where, that's where the rubber meets the road. And these things that we're going to talk about today, these are the things that matter day in and day out. First habit of happifying. Number one, serve selflessly. Serve selflessly. Did you know that not only did Puritans say this, modern research shows that those of us who serve, who contribute to others outside of our own needs or wants, statistically are happier than those who are self-absorbed and self-obsessed. Serving selflessly, yes, it helps other people, and that's a good thing, but it also helps the one who serves. Now, I know right now some of you are thinking, well, shouldn't we just serve because it's the right thing to do? No, duh. Yes, we should serve because it's the right thing to do, but to acknowledge the fact that we accrue benefits and blessings and happifying there's nothing wrong with that. That's how God wired up this world. It's how he wired us up. We work better when we serve him and when we serve other people selflessly. This is what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2. It's not going to be on the screen, but I want to encourage you to, to write this passage down and use it during your time with the Lord this week as you pray, as you read the Bible. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. This is what the Bible says. Don't be selfish. Can we just take a time out right there? Can we just do a time out? You can take it down. Serve selflessly. That's fine. Don't be selfish. That's a great sermon, isn't it? Just, you know, most sermons have three points and a poem. That one's just got three words. Don't be selfish. Can I tell you how much better our lives would work if we would just remember those three? Don't be selfish. I've shared with y'all before, you know, Julie and I have been graciously and blissfully married for 26 years. How many of you are not 26 years old yet? Let me just see a show of hands. If you're not 20, keep your hands up. That's all, isn't that great? It's the next generation, man. We celebrate y'all. That's great. You've got so much to learn. <laughs> and I say that because I'm still learning. I'm 51 years old. I'm almost middle-aged. But my point is, I'm still learning. When I serve Julie, when I, when I discern or perceive a want, I'm not even talking about a need, just something that she wants, maybe done around the house, maybe to eat for dinner, or, or whatever. When I serve Julie, Listen to this. Everything works better. Everything. That's just, a, that's just a universal law that I have noticed in our marriage. I've noticed the same thing as a parent. But it's true universally. When we serve each other, when we serve other people, everything works better. 
I, I think about a basketball coach that I had in high school, and I, I've never forgotten this moment. There, there was a, a practice one day where he was just, I mean, all over me. Just like, I could not do anything right. Richard, you're not in the right place. Richard, you can't jump. Richard, you're slow. I was like, I know. He, I was like, he just, he just kept on me and on me and on me. And towards the end of practice, he could tell that I was kind of getting a little mad. And I was kind of like, yes, sir. That, that, you know what I'm talking about? And I've never forgotten this. He said, Mac, come here. I thought, man, this is it. I'm about to get cut. He called me over and he said, listen. I want you to know this. If I'm not yelling at you, that's when you need to worry. And I realized in that moment he was yelling at me for my benefit as a basketball player. Yes, he needed the team to perform better and me to perform better, but he was engaged. He still believed that I could get better as a player. And it was that moment that propelled me to the NBA. I'm just kidding. I just say that for people who are new around. Like, really? He doesn't look like he played in the NBA. I didn't. <laughs> but when we serve each other, when I put your needs ahead of my needs, everything works better. I'm, I'm, we're not going to spend that long on the rest of this verse, but check this out. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Serve selflessly. That's what Jesus did. Number two. Happifying habit. Number two. Metabolize scripture. Metabolize scripture. Now notice I did not say study the Bible. I didn't say read the Bible. I said, metabolize it. You see, when we metabolize food, we, we ingest it, but we take food to convert it into energy that then we use for work, for, for doing what it is that we do day in and day out. And a lot of times, we eat food for fun, don't we? Now, not in January, because we're still in our New Year's resolutions, but that's getting ready to go by the wayside. Don't worry about it. But, but food, in its raw form, food is supposed to be there for our bodies to metabolize into energy that then gets turned into effort. The same thing is true for Scripture. We are to ingest the Word of God. We're to take the Word of God in for the purposes of then putting it out into the world in energy and work and labor for the purposes and the glory of God. And every time that we bring God glory, He brings us good. Every single time. So we metabolize scripture, which by the way, by the way, is why it is so imperative, mission critical, that you and I are part 
of a group, whether it's a life group or a book club Bible study, whatever it takes for you to be ingesting Scripture. Now, we do it when we gather together on the weekends in here. But in addition to this, we're always taking in more of God's Word. We're learning more of what He says and how He operates. And there's something that happens as we take that in, we start to enjoy it. We, we start to enjoy it as we metabolize it and live it out. I'll give you a great example. Every now and then, I'll, I'll do a sermon on the subject of tithing. We, we teach and preach the biblical principle of the tithe. And man, you talk about it, it gets quiet. Every now and then, you'll see somebody go. But nobody, I mean, nobody laughs at the jokes. Nobody, I mean, it's great. But what's fascinating is at the end of a sermon on tithing, when I'm shaking hands at the door, you can almost tell who tithes. Now, we don't keep track of it, but it's interesting. Because people come out, and like the people who don't tithe, and, and they're, they're kind of like, mm-hmm. <laughs> But the people who do tithe, man, they come out, man, thanks for that sermon. I love that. I wish you'd teach on tithing more often. You know why? Because they're affirmed in their obedience. They're like... That's right. That's why I tithe. I remember that now. God says he's going to bless it. Yeah, that's right. Happifying to the soul. That's, I remember that now. It's fascinating. But they have metabolized what the Bible says. They've put it out into the world. They've tried it. They've tested God, and they've seen that it works. It works in their lives. It works in the church. It works through the church. It works in every way that God promises it's going to work. They've metabolized it. They've taken it in. Number three, work intentionally. Work intentionally. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you find to put your hand to, work as for the Lord and not for men. To work intentionally. Now listen, I know, I know that some of you here in this room don't like your job. I get it. I, and I, and I, I sympathize with it. I don't empathize, but I sympathize. I'm, I'm sorry that that's true. But just for a second, hang on. What if, what if you began to look at your job as an opportunity for God? What if you began to look at your job not as the, the requirements and the list of do's and don'ts and job descriptions that you have to fulfill? We've, we, everybody's got job descriptions. But what if instead you looked at your job as an opportunity for the gospel? Because here's the thing. If you don't like your job, probably at least some people, if not a lot of people in your office, don't like their job either. But what if you saw your job as an opportunity to be a missionary of joy, to to bring joy and happifying into the workplace? What if you kind of rallied the troops, no matter what your position is, and said, hey, we can actually get this done and watch what's going to happen when we do this together. We're going to work on this. What if all of a sudden you began to look at your job as a calling from God and not just a way to get a paycheck? Now, for some of you, you're just in a horrible situation. You, you just got, you've got a horrific boss that is it's just not going to get better. You need to get a new job. And, and I'm not minimizing that, but I'm saying the first step the first step is to, is to change your mind and to work intentionally. Work intentionally as for the Lord. Number four, 
Thank relentlessly. Thank relentlessly. Not only God, but other people. Statistically, grateful people are 80% happier than entitled people. 80%. So if you're a person who looks for opportunities to express gratitude, you've got an 80% chance of being happier than the guy you sit next to or the girl you sit next to. Grateful people are happy. That's why we, we want to teach our kids to express. It's not enough to just be thankful. You have to express the gratitude. Express the gratitude. When, when Joseph was very, very little, you know, he, he has a big sister, and he didn't talk until he was three years old. Emily did all of his talking for him. But one of the ways that, that we kind of pulled him out of his shell is, is we would make him order for himself at a restaurant. At three or four years old, we would make him, you know, waddle up to the window at Chick-fil-A and go, may I have some more fries? Can I have some more fries? In a way that the person behind the register could hear him. But we were always deliberate to make sure that they also heard him say or heard uh, that they heard Emily say, thank you. Because a lot of times kids, I mean, they're kind of self-conscious and they're like, thank you, thank you. We do that sometimes. Thank you. It doesn't count. If the person that you're thanking doesn't hear it, it doesn't count. It's, it's great to be thankful. We got to say it. We got to maybe write a handwritten note. Is there anything better than getting mail with your name on it? Mr. Macrishaw. Whoa. Not even printed on an inkjet. That, that, Somebody actually used a pen. Express that thanks. Let them know. Thank relentlessly. Number five, give joyfully. Give joyfully. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Jesus says, it is more blessed, makarios, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We, we know it's more fun to give a great gift than it is to receive a great gift. Receiving's fine. But man, giving a great gift, that's when it gets fun. Be generous. This week, look for opportunities to buy somebody's lunch. Just buy, buy somebody's lunch. Or, or maybe you're in line at, at Starbucks. Buy, buy the coffee of the person behind you. And, and if they go for the venti, spice chai, latte, no fat, blah, blah, that's fine. Let me tell you another way. Tip well. When you go out to eat, some of you go walk around with calculators in your purse or your wallet. And you're like, you know what? That service was outstanding. I'm going to 17%. <laughs> if you don't tip well, do not tell anybody you go to church here. here here's what I figured. Let's say that a tip on a meal is... I don't know, $7.50. Let's just pick a number. $7.50. That's 20% of what? 35 bucks? 38? What is, math teacher, what is that? <laughs> awesome. Okay. Then I'm saying I'm right. $7.50 is 20% of $37. Whatever. If let's say that the tip is $7.50. What if you rounded up 
to $10. (gasps) I'm talking about $2.50. $2.50. It don't make a difference to you. It don't make a difference to that server. It's a statement of gratitude and generosity. Say, hey, 20% was $7.50, but that's okay. I'm going $10. Watch what that does. Obviously, it's a blessing to the person who receives it. But look at what it does to your life, to to your heart. Give joyfully. Be a person of generosity. And then number six, obey relentlessly. Obey God relentlessly. And I know I used relentlessly twice. That's okay. Obey relentlessly. Look at this verse from Proverbs chapter 16. Those who listen to instruction will prosper. Those who trust the Lord will be joyful. Those who trust the Lord will be joyful. If you trust God, you'll be joyful. Now, I think we all know that if you just try to keep the rules, you're not going to be joyful. We, we've all been around people who, who were legalistic. So we're kind of like, Those people, are, they're never joyful or happy or fun to be around. If they're doing it for themselves, man, that, that gets old. After a while, that will wear you slap out just to keep the rules for the sake of the rules. But if you keep the rules as a function of the relationship, whoa, God, God promises you'll be joyful. Obey God relentlessly. Whatever the Bible says, do that. What, what the Bible calls us to, live like that. Trust the Lord. How do, you, how do you trust God? You obey him. You, you do what he, what he says biblically to do. It's not easy. It's, I mean, believe me, we, we all fall short. It's not easy. But it's not complicated. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not hard to decipher. Whoever trusts the Lord will be joyful. They, they will be happified to their souls. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a minute. And in this minute, I want to just invite you to make sure that you're clear. And, and if I could, I just want to invite, if, if nobody would move or stir or create a distraction, because what God's doing right now is too important, folks. Football game doesn't even start till two-something today. So if you would, just remain seated prayerful, expectant and hopeful that'd be great 
If you're here today and you've never trusted God initially, you've never begun a relationship with Christ, we want to invite you to do it right now. Just to give you the opportunity. Because happifying our souls begins in a relationship with Jesus. Happifying our souls is sustained, is fueled and driven by a relationship with Jesus. If you're here today and you want to begin that relationship, we invite you to do so. Just right where you're sitting, pray a prayer of beginning. Just silently talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. That's what prayer is. It's just communicating with him. Say, Jesus, I need you. And I'm asking you to happify my soul. Eternally. Beginning right here and right now. I confess my sin to you. I admit that I've I've used other things or other reasons to try to get happy, but right now I I ask you to forgive me of my sin and I will follow you from this moment forward with everything I've got. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. you would just remain with your heads bowed for a moment if that was your prayer and you meant it you're kind of in the perfect place for that moment because you're surrounded by people who who love you who just like you are still in the process of figuring out and figuring it out and, and learning as we grow together and we want to help in any way that we can and so if you would allow us the privilege of just knowing that God did that in your life and you responded by taking the program that you got when you came in and just open it up you'll see there's a place there called the connect card inside if you just fill that out about halfway down, you'll notice there's a place to indicate I committed my life to Christ this week. Once you've completed that, you can tear that off at the perforation there along the fold. And before you leave, just hand that to one of our ushers. But then second of all, for those of you who just prayed that prayer. If you would just quietly and for another moment, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand up high over your head and hold it there for just a second because that physical act 
represents the spiritual commitment that you just made. It represents the the spiritual significance to us as a church family. And so we honor that and we celebrate it. As you put your hands down, your new family wants to put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.